How can we grow muscle to reverse degeneration and promote health? Steroids and drugs like Ozempic have many downsides. Longevity drugs and cures and all these things that you read about or hear about in the news or on YouTube seem really far away. What if there was something exciting going on right now that you could learn about in this episode? Well, meet Matt Scholes, serial founder of Osin Biotechnology, targeting senescent cells for age-related pathologies, cancer cells for solid tumors, and muscle growth, as well as the founder of Immunosoft Therapies, which has the mission to create novel therapies for rare diseases. So we focused on delivering nucleic acid payloads that basically put a suicide gene under a version of the P16 promoter. And so it is actually quite similar in principle to that and very different than a drug-based approach. The beauty though of, of our approach is that if you want to target another pathway with it, like say P53, uh, you don't need to build a whole new drug. It's just another bit of code. The phenotype is four times the muscle mass. Massive. He did all that and he's not even a doctor. Ocean is named after the Gaelic warrior bard of the 7th century, which sought the fountain of youth. Matt is turning that myth into reality and giving us a behind-the-scenes look at his company, his practices, the way he does business, as well as he, the way he does science, including revealing how he landed Tim Draper, one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley and the United States as a whole. Before he got on stage, the newly elected as the prime minister of, uh, of Austria. So it's like a high-profile event, and uh, then he gets on and does this whole thing. And I, I decided the best way to corner him was to... We'll need to watch the full episode to find out. Learning with Osen is developing a high-precise, patent-pending DNA-targeting intervention to clear these cells, as a recent study has shown. Clearing senescent cells both reduces negative effects of aging pathologies and also extends median lifespan and survival. So that's a quote straight, straight from your website, which aligns with a, uh, a listener question, a shiny bauble. Uh, says, there are dozens or more senescent cell companies. Most have struggled to find a mechanism that is sufficiently safe, selective for senescent cells, to use therapeutically, while also providing good drug-like properties. What makes OSIN different? The fundamental approach we've taken to this is quite different than I'd say most, if not all, of the, the companies out there. And that we set out to basically kill cells based on what they were thinking, not what they looked like or how they were acting. And uh, but more technically, we're killing cells based on their transcriptional activity. And this was really largely inspired by a study that I think, you know, to some extent, launched the field. Uh, this, uh, you know, Buck Mayo Clinic study where they made the transgenic mice that allowed them to kill P16 uh, positive cells with a, an otherwise innocuous drug. And the, the results for that were quite uh, profound, but it, you know, it, I can't, this wasn't the tradition of a lot of these kind of academic studies. It wasn't translationally useful. You can't go back in time and modify your own embryo and become a transgenic organism. And so for the most part, people have gone about trying to kill senescent cells with repurposed chemotherapies. And, uh, and yeah, to, it's a fair point that uh, making those things selective uh, and, and safe enough is, is a real challenge. When, when we started Ocean, like our goal was to actually make a clinically viable version of, of that transgenic study. And so we focused on delivering nucleic acid payloads that basically put a suicide gene under a version of the P16 promoter. And so it is actually quite similar in principle to that and very different than a drug-based approach. And so uh, um, and I think it's a fair point to say that like, P16 positive cells are not like, you know, a perfect overlap uh, on the Venn diagram of senescent cells. And I, I think it's also fair to say that the field at large has not yet fully characterized every kind of population of senescent cells. Like there's still ones I think we don't know exist. And, uh, and they're 
and whether getting rid of them is, is makes things better or worse is uh, actually still an open question. But uh, P16 was a pretty good one. And, uh, and in those studies, you know, even wiping them out you know, weekly from the time they were weaned uh, didn't seem to have any deleterious effects. And so we, we thought it was a relatively safe and effective way to go about it. The, uh, the beauty, though, of, of our approach is that if you want to target another pathway with it, like, say, P53. At any point in this conversation, if you find value in it, please subscribe. It is hugely beneficial, and it tells Google and everyone out there that this is content worth watching. Thank you for everyone thus far who has commented, liked, subscribed, and told their friends. Uh, you don't need to build a whole new drug. It's just another bit of code. Um, I mean, uh, the, the North Star really for ocean in general going through this is that the you know, essence of life is information. And if you can treat diseases with information, you can do things that really would be impossible, if not you know wildly impractical at least uh with conventional medicinal chemistry and so to you know go after p16 and p53 is is trivial like there's no need to re-engineer everything it's just a another sequence um and uh and as you start looking at uh you know new pathways that uh, as the field moves along i think we can adapt to that in a way that it's very hard to do uh in any other approach and so the the other Thing. We haven't seen toxicity from this that looks problematic, but uh, but if you if you discovered, um, say, like P twenty one is a good example of one that um, looked like it might have real toxicity if you use that as a primary targeting uh, pathway, um, you could uh, put you know what amounts to Boolean logic in your construct because it, it's now code, you know, it's just DNA, and so you could you know put a you know microRNA target or interfering RNA or a suppressor under, uh, and you could actually restrict its expression in tissues in a way that you really uh, couldn't do practically with uh, other approaches. Is it, so I have not been in a lab before, so I don't know the difficulty of actually engineering these things. How hard is it, like that, the process, what's that process like? It, if this is like 2IP, it's fine to just do like a high level, but the, the Caspase 9 suicide gene, it reminds me of like, a, you know, Cas9 when they, you know, with mosquitoes that they engineered the gene in there, which caused like a gene uh, drive in it so that like the next generation will all become male. So they all die out. So they can't populate out. That's why I assume it's like a structure. But what is it? What is it like for what you're doing? Well, so the I guess I should make it distinction probably more for the audience than anything else. Uh, but uh, Cas9, like uh, as in what's used with like CRISPR type stuff and cast base nine are actually very different things like uh mm. you know one is a you know cutting a double making double strand breaks the other is a suicide gene and they but the acronyms are similar enough that i frequently get this uh, uh question where someone's uh, mixing them up but uh i guess that a real fundamental uh difference with the way our technology works is that none of these things integrate into the genome of the organism so they're uh, they're DNA, but they're episomal. So they uh, they exist as like you know basically a plasmid in the in the nucleus, but not in the genome itself. And so they're uh, the goal is not to say eradicate the senescence pathway, which you know has a lot of utility. Uh, the goal is just to make a point in time intervention where those cells will die and uh, other cells will be unharmed, and then you can go you can make a new senescent cell the next day. And so the uh, um, but. What what's really fascinating about how the fields evolved is like we're at a point now where you can type a gene sequence into your iPhone and it'll show up in the mail in a FedEx envelope. Like you can write a, a program in the language of life and uh, and get it delivered to your doorstep. And so the real engineering challenge in in the lab and in in life is delivery. Um, 
your body has a vested interest in not letting foreign DNA execute. Um, and so it, it puts up a fight. And so you want to basically be able to evade those defenses without causing harm. And, you know, traditionally, uh, we use viral vectors for this, right? You know, like, uh, you know, adenoviruses, uh, you know, gamma retroviral vectors and lentiviral vectors and all these things, AV. And, and they have a real issue uh, in terms of your, your body knows that a virus is and doesn't like it. And, uh, and most of them can only be used once. And uh, a lot of them, they carry all sorts of interesting constraints. But uh, they, their, their benefit is, of course, they're a purpose-built machine optimized for nucleic acid delivery. But uh, let's see, your, your body is aware of these things and has uh, been at war with them. You know, ever, ever since life existed, uh, it's been locked in a struggle with the virus. And so our, ours is a non-viral vector, and it, it doesn't have that limitation. And so you can administer it uh, at really high doses, repeatedly, safely, and uh, and you can deliver these payloads uh, across the body. And um, I think it, it's a, kind of a unique problem, but it's it's really led to me developing a, a professional obsession of court, uh, sorts with a nucleic acid delivery. I think that is really the, the choke point for these kinds of interviews. How does a nucleic acid delivery compare to like mRNA vaccines that people are more familiar with when it comes to like COVID and stuff? Well, there's some overlap in them, really. Um, I mean, you can use, a, like if you take the, the COVID vaccine, some of them were actually full-on DNA viral vectors, like adenovirus one, things like, you know, the J&J one or the uh, AstraZeneca one. Um, they were, uh, those were both a straight-out DNA virus. Um, most, like the Pfizer Moderna ones that were most common in the U.S. were lipid nanoparticle-based uh, mRNA. And the, the technology we use, the, the proteolipid vehicle, is uh, is capable of delivering mRNA. So you, you could actually do this uh, with the same technology. The, if you put DNA, in, go the other way, put DNA into a a lipid nanoparticle becomes far more toxic actually so they're, they're not used for that but uh but our, our particular one can go either way and the reason we're using dna is we want to take advantage of the control logic that it affords so uh, if you put mrna into these things it, it will go to any cell and it will execute and if you do that with a suicide gene well uh, mm -hmm. bad things are probably going to happen it's going to think think indiana jones face melting type style uh where like any cell that's contacted just dies um so so we, we want the control logic uh, for for this particular application, but we can use mRNA for other things. Makes sense. The Outside of the science, uh, one thing that I'm always really excited to learn about is like, the business side or the other leadership areas that I think a lot of people, when um, they're reading about the clinical trials or they're reading about the new IP that's coming out, they don't realize that there's a lot of other things that need to work or uh, for, like, for the science to even make sense. I was working at, a, uh, I was once working with a, a a deep tech company. I'm trying to like be nondescript because I'll be disparaging in a second. But they were um, once on the outside. I was like, oh, okay, hey, okay, these these people know what they're doing. And on the inside, I was like, oh wow, like they tape everything down. And so, uh, but there was like kind of like leadership issues, and they eventually died. And I, you kind of see it coming from the inside. And so I'm always curious to learn about the things that people don't realize. It's not always just the science. You know, like things need to be right for the science. Also, you need the leadership and the finance and stuff. So, what do you do? You do anything interesting when it comes to you know setting up the business? or structuring like your burn downs or anything like that. Um, where I think a, a good example of this is the recent interview with uh, Kelsey Moody and their business model is really interesting because they're, they're, they're profitable so they can keep like innovating and stuff like that. Um, so when it comes to the non-science side of things, what's like some of your differentiations considering the fact that you've, you're like 15, 20 years, you have a, you, you have a long you know uh, experience to pull from to like do things differently. Yeah, I, I think part of uh... The, 
the key here is figuring out where you fit in in the ecosystem and what you're good at, what you like. And uh, and that you know, should dictate how you build your teams and, and structure your organization. And for for me, I'd say if you were to distill it down, the, I, I'm really passionate about taking things out of the lab and into the real world. Um, I, I like finding really cool pieces of technology and figuring out how to build them into something that's therapeutic and useful. So it's like this kind of early translational edge. And uh, so we're not likely to, you know, we're not going to be a commercial uh, pharmaceutical company anytime soon, although I, I would like to actually at some point do that. Um, but uh, so our teams are typically very small. They're they're focused on finding people who know their spaces really well. Like when, I mean, a good example probably of this was the first one I started, uh, Immusoft. And, uh, and before that, I had no background in bio. And I, I licensed some technology out of Caltech and uh, later out of a uh, University of Minnesota, and then had found some some weird stuff in France. And, uh, and I, as I started to build a lab for the first time you know, ever and bring people in, I said, look, we're going to be the undisputed world experts in this technology, in this case, uh, producing engineered B cells, autologous uh, along with plasma cells, discrete therapeutics. And I said, we're going to know this better than anyone. And like, we'll know better than like, all the experts out there, like from from the, the tops of their fields to the the journals to the regulators, like this is going to be our expertise, and and we're not going to do anything else. Like if it's not a part of that, like we're going to outsource it. And so we basically ran it that hard for like seven years, um, and, uh, and eventually, like I mean that that went into clinic fairly recently, just in the, the last few months. Uh, the first human ever received engineered B cell therapy. Yeah, super exciting, but uh, but it, it built like a a lead that I think is largely insurmountable, like that, uh, that, that level of focus, it, you didn't need to have a hundred people and like a hundred million dollars. Like it, it, you needed to have people who knew that stuff better than anyone and could build it. And I uh, figured out how to, how to scale this idea from like the first fluorescent cell in a dish. Um, yeah, actually some of my early proposals and reports, like one GFP positive cell, <laughs> I'm like, oh, look at that cell. It's amazing. <laughs> it's a primary B cell that we transfected. And, uh, um, to something that you can make, you know, at human scale for a patient in, uh, in GMP conditions. And so I think that that, for, for my purposes, it's really trying to build like small kind of uh, tactical, m much more like, I guess, a SEAL team than a, a huge organization. It's uh, trying to figure out who, who do I need to accomplish this particular mission? And I said, it, as you go out farther, I think that, you know, going after aging, it's a monumental challenge. And I think you, you'll you need the resources of a big pharma to do it at some point. That's why I think I'd like to do that at some point is to get big enough that you can actually run drugs all the way through to commercial. But uh, that is such a massive challenge. And uh, and there's not like a lot of easy ways to get there. I mean, you need to first, you know, like build things and license them out, you know, have, have these successes early on and, and kind of build this uh, platform and pipeline to do it. So that, that's where we focused. And I think that as a, as a general rule, if you aren't looking at your environment and how you fit into it, it's really hard to put together a team that's going to be successful. And uh, if you, I'm sure, like I, I'm familiar with Kelsey's background, it's really fascinating. Uh, kind of like I suppose in some respects, like uh, mine, although he is more more in the space than I was, but unconventional start and and you see more of this. I, mean, I something the stats something like three quarters of all blockbuster drugs on the market come from companies that are small biotech, small pharma. Um, so if you look at big pharma companies, they're a lot more like a record label than a band. They, they don't make drugs as much as they sell them. And uh, they're willing to pay a premium to get them uh, from little companies, but they're, they've largely 
decided they're better at, at selling and distributing things than they are at making them. And I think that it's important thing to understand um, that if you're if you're going out to start something, like how are you going to fit in? Yeah. So the the focus and obsessing down on a, a specific song to make, and then building it up to uh, an album that will then be distributed up to the, the record label. Um, so the big things I heard were focusing and obsession. <clears throat> one one uh, I think opportunity to like follow on with this is the you transitioned into the field like you weren't in biotech originally. How did you? What did you do? Or tell me about how you got people to believe in you, I guess. <laughs> it, was, it was painful and iterative. I, 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 won't, <laughs> I won't lie. It, it was a little bumpy. Um, and so uh, I guess the, the initial angle in was through cybersecurity. And uh, I, I got interested. That's, I, I was a computer science background. And in the thing that really first captivated my imagination was the idea of immune memory. And uh, like you get a, uh, I mean, Take like an 80 year old has been vaccinated against smallpox or got it when they were young like they still have antibodies floating around to that disease and they're made by the same cells that were there all those years ago and and so as a the kind of computer scientist i got wondered like well where's the file where's the hard drive like in what language is immune memory written and uh, it kind of led me down this rabbit hole in, in immunology the adaptive or humoral immune system in particular but uh and when it started thinking about uh diseases you couldn't vaccinate against effectively, like HIV, um, there's an interesting phenomenon, right? I mean, this is a disease that's killed tens of millions of people. And everyone who's got it made countless trillions of antibodies in an effort to fight it and eventually succumbed. But uh, a handful of people made antibodies that kept them safe. They either didn't get sick or they got sick very slowly. And uh, they call these guys elite suppressors or elite controllers. And, and we've pulled the sequence for these antibodies out of the arms of survivors in, in Africa primarily and began to like optimize them in a lab. But if you think about this conceptually, we waged a brute force attack with flesh and blood against a computer program, against a virus. And, uh, and we, so we, we fought this battle with, with the souls of, of humanity and, uh, um, against a computer program. And so I, I got interested in trying to use cryptographic hardware, like password breakers, uh, like re really high powered ones to effectively evolve the immune system in silico to wage that war with silicon and stuff, flesh and blood. And, uh, and so I'd start playing around with things like protein docking and uh, all this kind of stuff early, early on, and uh, long before you know, alpha fold and all these cool things. But uh, um, as I got into it, yeah, some snarky scientists had pointed out that cells don't have USB ports and you can't just program them. Like you couldn't, uh, like we already knew the sequence for the broadly neutralizing antibodies. You couldn't upload them to people. And, and that kind of blew me away. And I guess it's a testament to my ignorance of the field, but uh, I, I'd assume that like people already knew how to do that. Like, I mean, people have been obsessed with manipulating DNA ever since they knew what double helix looked like. It, uh, mm -hmm. And I, how, how can we be that bad at it? And uh, it's like you know, 15 years ago, there's no proof gene or cell therapy back then. And, uh, and so uh, I started that first company to build an app store for the human body, a way of brokering information into life. So you could specifically program the immune system. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that, that became the point of focus. It's like, I want to, uh, like I need to learn enough about immunology to figure out what cells you need to program, and how, how you like identify them, capture them, manipulate them, grow them, all these things. And uh, um, and and that became the thesis that guided all the technical development. But uh, I, it was probably a couple of years, I think, from the time I had this idea to the time I got funded. And uh, it was, it was like I said, it was bumpy. Like I I started out by just going to 
every bio event I could find and telling anyone who'd listen, I wanted to build my app store. And uh, it would, you know, the general objection was just, you're crazy. That's not going to work. <laughs> you have no business being in this field anyway. You don't know anything about it. And um, every time this would happen, I basically corner someone and say, okay, well, what's the biggest problem? Then? Like, What's going to break first? Why, why is this impossible? And then I'd start reading about that topic and I'd find someone who wrote about it a lot who I liked. And I, I would call them up and say, hey, I'm trying to build my app store. Um, and I, I think there's a problem. Uh, could you help me? And, uh, and I built this really cool advisory board that way. Basically, just every time someone had a problem I, I didn't know the answer to, um, I would go find a, an expert in it and uh, read up all their stuff. And I, I do weird things. I got read you know like the actual dissertations people have written and things like that something i, I don't think most uh people actually read their own dissertation all the way through yeah it's a, um, one of those things that's largely forgotten once it's done and uh people are always be shocked by this and for for me it's just, i didn't know anything about the field like I, i'd sit around reading like methods of molecular biology just protocol for protocol trying to understand like what were the tools that were used how, how did you actually do these things and how did it work and uh and eventually people ran out of reasons why it wouldn't work and we got funded uh, so it sounds like one thing that you did there was um, you leaned into the difference. You, like, I think sometimes people feel like they need to hide the fact that they're not, you know, that they don't belong or, you know, whatever. But it sounds like you you, you not only ran with it, but you, you really made, even your language in describing it involves that cybersecurity background that you had. Um, and so, like, you didn't hide it. Like, you ran with it. You pushed into it. And then you used that, like, that different way of thinking uh, as a differentiator. It sounds like when people were assessing whether or not to give you money, they weren't like, oh, is this guy on the level? It was like, oh, he's very transparent in what he's doing, which is pretty cool. And the other thing I was going to ask you, like, how did you learn? How did you like, you know, uh, learn enough to be sufficient? And I've never heard of this process before where you crowdsourced uh, the focus. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, uh, you're going up to someone and say, hey, this is my idea. It's like, oh, this is all the reasons that it can't work. It's like, oh, great. I'll be back in a month. <laughs> Like right. that's a really very targeted way to talk to the smartest people, tell them your idea, and then just watch how they respond to it. That's a really smart. I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely steal that. If any idea I have from moving on, like that's very re re a repeatable process for anyone listening oh, as yeah. well. It's particularly effective in the bio space because scientists uh, they can kind of be dicks. The uh, they they don't <laughs> feel bad about making you look stupid. Some of them, like I'm convinced, get off on this. They uh, just uh, they love it. Um, <laughs> There's a certain demographic I can think of uh, that that I, I will obviously uh, I'll speak out anytime because they, they're just ruthless. But uh, we're like if you're talking about like I don't know your Twitter three for the cat or your next AI thing or whatever, like people are like, oh yeah, sure that sounds fine. Like the uh, there's few people who credibly know things about it anyway, and it's not likely to elicit that kind of feedback. Where at a technical uh, you know science event, they're just like. Yeah, outsider, like, uh, this, is, this is stupid. And uh, they, they don't hesitate uh, to, to do it. It's, I'm part of the culture, I think, a little bit in sciences. You know, they, they are more forward with that kind of thing. And, uh, and yeah, I absolutely used it to my advantage. I, I had a, there, there was a, one person in particular who, uh, after doing this more than once, uh, eventually politely asked me to not talk to him again. I, stop, stop bothering him. <laughs> but uh if I keep coming back, I'm like, all right, well, I think I solved this one. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it uh, it was a lot of that. And I mean, I just eat, sleep, and breathe medical journals. And it, it took, I don't know, probably six months or so before I could read those fluently. I, I used to have to read them, you know, Google open next to it to look up all the words I didn't know. But uh, 
the you know so they have their own lexicon and I, I think in some respects the lexicon i like to use this you know parlance from computer science was kind of offensive to the field back then but has largely been embraced now it doesn't seem so out of place anymore i mean you look think of like the david sinclair just wrote this book on information theory of aging or whatever and uh it's like this is you know the party line from day one on on ocean it, it sounded foreign now now you've got like harvard scientists who are you know uh, publishing on a, a whole books and so i think the the world in some respects evolved around us um like back back then like i said there weren't any gene or cell therapies approved when, when provenge got approved you know um the dendritic cell therapy you know exo cancer vaccine was a a big step because it was a you know manipulated cell therapy and uh and the rise of car t was huge you know and once uh once that started like suddenly people started thinking oh gosh you could take cells out, modify and put them back and that can do some some really cool stuff. And so we, we didn't actually change so much to the environment because the environment changed around us. And I think that's the, the actually probably one of the weirder things about the, the journey at large was that at some point along the lines, I, I crossed like this invisible line where I went from being a complete outsider to just someone who was there. Like, and uh, it, it was a weird thing, like, and, and, to the point, like I became like I guess a rogue PI of sorts. Like I had my own lab, I had my own team did cool stuff, and you know, say, oh, there's like you know, Dr. Schultz doing something weird again. And uh, and I, I would have to like correct like, half the talks I've ever given. I'm like, you have, I, I don't have a PhD. <laughs> like uh, I'm, not, I'm not a doctor of any sort. Like uh, to edit my chirons and whatnot. Um, but <laughs> there, there was a weird line, yeah, where it just, and it seemed to happen overnight, where it had been for a long time, it just completely an outsider, and then suddenly. Yeah, not anymore. Um, <laughs> maybe still viewed as crazy, but uh, but but crazy in a, a part of the system. Yeah, I think uh, George Church talking about that uh, coding parlance. I, uh, even going back like ten since the beginning of uh, uh, CRISPR, he's referred to it more like code. And I mean, it kind of acts that way. I mean, I, I do yeah. programming, so like the it's like it is. I don't know how to do the in lab stuff, but in terms of like what I'm reading, it's like oh, this seems very like one to one. Um, and I like the. The neat thing is that people are more and more understanding code, like the the world around them. But besides lower generations, I've been recently reading that people that are below uh, millennial age, they don't know how to figure things out because every, um, and this might be one of those mean things, like all oh, those young people. But uh, apparently, mm -hmm. because everything's so well designed nowadays, they don't know how to troubleshoot as much. It's like when we were kids and we had, couldn't figure something out, you couldn't like Google how to solve it, so you had to like break and hammer and figure it out. Mm -hmm. Like the internet, for instance, didn't exist. I assume you're about my age. So, like the internet didn't exist when I was a kid. And so, uh, so apparently, like younger people, because everything's like Apple, beautiful. You just click a button and everything works. Like, apparently, like troubleshooting is weirder for them or something. But I don't. That feels like one of those like older people being mean to the younger people. I'm sure they're good at pro problem solving too. Um, but the the the, co the co which is just to say, like coding, I think as an analogy, yeah, is definitely more ma uh, mainstream. And people like George Church and stuff as well. Where um, I think we're using it the whole time, which is kind of nice too. Yeah, yeah. You have, yeah, like, there's definitely like a subset of of biologists that thought of this. I mean, one of those weird dissertations uh, I'd read that I, I was super interested in early on was, I, so I wanted to understand what was the key space of the humoral immune system? Like, what, what is that? Like, if you think of like DNA as base four assembly, a certain number of bits that uh, encode the, you know, sticky ends of your BRT cell receptors. And, uh, and but they are not infinite. It's a bounded space. And, uh, and so I was curious, like, okay, what, if you're going to use a password cracker on this, for example, what is uh, how many you know computations do you have to do to go through that whole space? And uh, and that was something like I said, I found it on like a, a derelict server, um, and uh, I 
pretty sure no one had gone through it in years, but it, it was written a long time ago. And it's a, there, there was definitely like a thread through here that, that goes back to the beginning of the field, I'd say. But, uh, um, the, but it, it just wasn't mainstream. And the average like molecular and cell biology crew did not like it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a, there, there, it's always been there, but it was definitely a minority. And one that was tolerated less when you, uh, you know, weren't uh, George Church probably. But <laughs> <laughs> a renowned scientist at yeah. prestigious uh, uh, university. Were, were any of the people that were original detractors? Were were they? Uh, were any of them eventually hired onto the team? Were any of the people like uh, really, really? I guess the gentleman who said like stop talking to me. It'd be pretty <laughs> nice to hear that like he like was on the board now or something. But uh, did, well, it's yeah. funny is he did find me like a few years later, and he came up to me. He's like, hey, I just wanted to say like. I, I'm impressed by uh, you know, what you accomplished here. Oh, nice. I was like, well, I was like, oh, thank you so much for your help. Like you actually were, <laughs> you were super helpful. <laughs> I appreciate it. But uh, I think uh, there were definitely, I mean, in the terms of like investors and advisors and things like that, people who were like really raked us over the coals who became really big advocates going forward. But uh, I don't know if there's anyone who we hired outright who, thought is entirely insane um but <laughs> just because we're, we weren't a real big group but uh mm. but yeah there, there's definitely been people who i mean in fact i think some of the biggest advocates uh you know we had over the years have been people who initially were very skeptical of it and uh that they went once they kind of became convinced of it they suddenly were like oh my gosh this is like a, a, an epiphany of sorts this is, this is brilliant we should totally do this mm. But actually, speaking of investors, I wrote this down for uh, um, that you were able to get Tim Draper uh, to invest in uh, Musoft. Uh, and so I was just wondering, is there any story behind going, like, I think we're kind of talking about it now, like going from like complete outsider to getting someone who's like one of the key investors for like an entire space? Yeah, well, so the, uh, the way that initially started to go down was, uh, we became one of the first breakout labs companies. And so, mm. I mean, getting getting it funded was not easy, right? Like, um, say you want to build something that has never existed with no background in the space is not an easy sell. Like, it doesn't check a lot of boxes. And uh, when breakout labs got started, they were basically, so this is part of the Teal uh, Foundation, your Teal's group. And, uh, and they were basically trying to fund things that were too early for venture capital and too outside the box for the NIH. And uh, and they issued a press release when they launched. And it's like, this is what we're looking for. And uh, our, our actual COO today had uh, found this. And uh, he uh, sent it to me. I was like, man, if, if these guys aren't going to fund us, no one will. Like, this, this looks like it was written for us. And, uh, and so we applied to it. And we became part of the first cohort they had. And... Then uh, it's how I got initially you know, introduced to Peter Thiel and then uh, Founders Fund led our Series A. And I had met uh, Draper at one of those events, actually, I think, uh, connected to that uh, that whole ecosystem. And so he came in uh, the Series A also with uh, Founders Fund. When, you, when you're at an event like that, I think many people listening in, or, you know, maybe nerdy scientists, maybe someone on the sidelines trying to transition in like you did, uh, and they're seeing someone like that and maybe they would come up and they wouldn't know what to say. What, what were like, do you go up there and talk to someone like that um, with a strategy in mind or you just say, Hey, Hey Matt, how you doing? And then like start a conversation, you know, like I imagine that person's kind of being like a uh, locust a little bit too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, with those guys, you really need to get, I think an introduction to them. Like I, I, I've been involved in breakout labs for quite a while before I ever met, you know, Peter Thiel and, uh, and, they're 
like with uh with Tim, I think that I can't remember the exact background for that, but uh they're yeah, I, I think a lot of them like mobbing them just at an event is is tough. Yeah. And if you do, uh you have to have it down to like, you know, a, a 10 second elevator pitch basically. And uh and just try to, you know, get a get a car to get a meeting and maybe you get thrown to the gatekeepers or whatever, or or you can say, Hey, I uh yeah, we met at this event and um, you know, I remember my app store for the human body or my uh you know treating aging with information or whatever, uh you know, little sound bite you can throw to stick in their head. But it, it has you have to lodge something really quick. And uh actually there, <laughs> there's a it's a I guess probably an okay story to share. Um Tim Traper you'll laugh, I'm sure at this, but uh so he invited me to an event in Vienna a few years ago in uh, in Austria, and uh, and he's like, "Oh, we'll meet here and uh, we can chat." And I was trying to get him to put more money in, and uh, so I go all the way out to this event that uh, he gets me. In. So, the, so you know, a long trip for uh, you know, a small company, you know, early CEO, and and he was mobbed like this entire time, um, and I was having a real hard time uh, actually pinning him down, and. So he, uh, and he is going to head out pretty soon, but he had this big thing on stage, uh, like it was a, a huge hall, like hundreds of people. And, uh, they, uh, and right, uh, before he got on stage, the newly elected, he's the prime minister of, uh, of Austria. So it was like a high profile event. And uh, then he gets on, and does this whole thing. And I, I decided the best way to corner him was to sit in the front row of this audience. And then when he got off stage, I walked onto stage from the audience and slid behind <laughs> the backdrop and captured him. And I'm like, man, if Secret Service is here, this is going to be the shortest uh, little talk in my life. Um, <laughs> about to be tackled. But, uh, um, but yeah, so the, sometimes you have to be a, a little creative to, uh, to pin people down. But uh, walk, walking onto the stage from the audience is probably one of the the more insane stunts that uh, I've pulled over the years to to meet someone, but uh, and, and someone who I was supposed to be meeting with anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so. uh, if I see you at a conference, I'll try to do that too. So even you know, we've already met. No one's yeah. there to protect me. But when uh, when you first um, when you first were talking to him, uh, and this is really a question about uh, there's this quote saying that you're good, you're good at like if you have if you go around telling people I'm good at X, it means you're probably okay at it. But if you go around and people are like, oh, wow, you're good at this, it usually means you're great at it. So when you first were meeting this uh, individual, or was he aware of you or did you have to speak up for yourself? Like, was was the fact that you were in the community and you took your time, like you said, like you were in the, the fellowship for a while before you met Peter Taylor or what have you, um, was did your work lead the way for these successful relationships to be built? Or, and that's fine if they didn't, I was just kind of curious. Yeah, I mean, I, given that, I was always such an outsider and didn't have like the credentials or anything to like be really, uh, you know, brandishing. I, I usually was more talking about like what I wanted to do and my, my vision for what I wanted to do as opposed to like myself or why I was like the person to do it. In, in some respects, the, the, there's a, a benefit to doing really crazy things is they haven't heard this pitch a hundred times. <laughs> They probably never heard this pitch ever, and so um, I, I don't have to be like, "Oh, I'm I have like the, you know, I'm the best person to build Twitter three, like, uh, or uh, I'm I'm the best person to make this new model." Like, uh, yeah, I was the only one pitching that kind of thing, and so I was mostly focused on trying to convince them I wasn't insane. Um, but uh, I, I think that with a, a fair number of the kind of high profile 
investors I've gotten, like it probably had more to do with what other people said to them in terms of getting that meeting initially. Like that, these guys, you know, could be meeting every minute of their life for the next, like, you know, three lifetimes. <laughs> like there's so many people who want to, to, you know, get FaceTime with these people that, uh, and if you're just like pestering them or telling them how cool you are, I, I, I don't know, I, I'd have a hard time doing that. Like the, the, the reason, like, I mean, I fear they want to talk to me anyway is because there's something cool that I'm doing that. Like, I mean, I, my, my goal is to make all these people a ton of money and to build something that no one's ever built. And, uh, and so I don't think anyone, you know, came there to hear about me. So <laughs> I don't usually talk about it that much. Every now and then they, they ask like, how the hell did you end up doing this? Like, yeah. that, that's usually the segue if it does come up. And then, uh, just a quick, uh, question. Cause I think, um, Osin recently completed their seed round. If I was reading this right, or if my memory is serving me, I did not write this down. I should have for this question. Um, are seed rounds for biotechnology relatively boring? I've read the, uh, like in the sense of like, do you just use like a convertible safe or is there other like ways of, of setting them up that you found to be more successful? Yeah. I mean, I, this also is probably a little unique to me in that like there, there's a big, I'd say bifurcation in bio between companies that, you know, come out of like your arch or your flagship or these big like formation entities that huge, like kind of series A's and stuff out of the gate. And, uh, and ones that kind of come out of, uh, spun out of academia with seed funding and, and then probably more rare, even ones like mine. Um, and so we got a, like a whole bunch of like angels and small VCs early on as we did this. And, uh, and so we did a lot of things like safes and convertible notes early on. So we're, we're actually doing series A for ocean. Now we got a, a big pharma strategic investor to lead it. And which is also a little unusual. Those aren't. The typical leads they often are, are following but uh for in, in our case i thought it was a really good fit because they they understand the science really well and so they they're uh yeah i don't know if i'd use the word boring but uh they don't do anything super exotic they uh yeah. um they're they're more or less the you know, same kinds of things and i know things like safes and notes are controversial in some circles but uh one of the reasons i like them is the last person you know, I want to screw over is the first investors. And uh, if you do things like set evaluation uh, that has, you know, yeah, no real basis in reality with something that has like, you know, crazy high risk, high return uh, in, in a market that could be very different in a couple of years, um, it, it exposes them to a ton of risk um, and uh, that they could just be obliterated uh, due to like a, a change in, in shift in the market or due to like something taking longer than it should. And so it, I think they have uh, more protection in these things that uh, allow them to just convert under more favorable terms in, in one way or another. But, so we, we've used those uh, a bunch. Yeah, I, well, I, can, I consider them more boring because I know people who will do like a, a seed round and they'll uh, they'll uh, they will not do <coughs> saves. They like they're like they hate them or something. And it's like I don't know. It's, it seems pretty straightforward. You know, um, they seem like the thing that you should do so you can focus on other things. And like you said, I think it. Um, uh, makes it easier for investors to kind of invest in you, I think. Um, yeah, and they, I mean, all, like they have flaws. I think the they're not perfect. I mean, I, I could envision like a perfect uh, document that was like a hybrid between a convertible note and a safe. I think would be like ideal. And I, I don't want to get into the legal business of just creating random documents. And and in general, people tend to like like use a YC safe or something. They're like, okay, I know what mm -hmm. this is. Uh, use a template that's as 
like from a major law firm and don't screw with it too much as just the kind of way it is. But uh, I mean, I, I understand like the, the strengths and weaknesses of them, but I think on balance, they're a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, so the back, back to OSIN and more science related topics. But, uh, so this is pulling from MIT uh, paper. Um, in it, it says, and I can go longer if you need it, uh, but uh, the, the main core is, in, the, in a new study, senior author Darren Baker of the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota found that if, <clears throat> sorry, if researchers removed senescent cells or prevented them from building up, they could prevent brain degeneration in mice prone to it. And there's like, there's more to it that I can give to you on this uh, for context if you'd like, but I'm just curious what you think about uh, that connection between senescent cell therapies and affecting brain health and aging. Yeah, it's something we've seen like in our own studies, actually. So we, we saw a cognitive improvement clearing senescent cells uh, broadly in the body um, in, in old mice. And so they, they weren't prone to the disease and it wasn't spreading in the brain specifically. But uh, what what's interesting about our approach, I'll, I'll contrast that because I, I don't know if I've read that paper, um, but if they're clearing it in the brain, it's a little different. So like our, uh, our typical vector doesn't really cross the blood brain barrier. Um, so it will transfect cells in the brain, but it's usually in the vasculature. And, uh, and so even though we weren't like directly removing cells inside the brain tissue, we were seeing uh, benefits in this. And I suspect that this has to do with just, you know, integrity of the blood brain barrier and inflammation in the CMS. Um, now you're, you're clearing senescent cells across the whole body um, and you're reducing this inflammatory state and the body's able to function or generate better. The, uh, the role of senescence inside uh, tissues in the CMS is kind of a, it's a little different beast. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I suspect that, I mean, that you have more of a problem with uh, on things like your, your microglia and stuff like that than you would with uh, a neuron. But, uh, but if you end up with inflammation and impaired garbage collection in the brain, it's probably going to do something bad. And, uh, and so I think this, as a general thesis, is you know pretty defensible. But what I, I'm less clear about is which one is more important. Like if you, uh, if you remove, improve the overall body environment, uh, does that benefit the brain more than directly trying to target the brain? Yeah, I think uh, one of, it was about a year or so ago, I had uh, Oki O'Connor on the show. Mm -hmm. Which corresponded with my first time seeing a, a neurologist. Yeah, where they scan your head, and it was so it's interesting to to see that your like most things that affect your heart affect your brain. Uh, a lot like so if you can keep your heart healthy, you keep generally keep your brain healthy too. So um, which is like probably an obvious statement to like people who like know more about this, but it was interesting to to think uh, how you know if you exercise more, you start thinking a little. A little quicker start i mean yeah, there's so many studies is huge yeah issue. it's huge yeah i i just kind of took it for granted like, oh i exercise i feel better and then you know um and there's studies about like even old people when they have cognitive decline if they do some aerobic exercise it decreases the rate at that decline and even in some cases kind of bring it back and so um i'm really curious to see some of these uh long-term um studies going on because even though we're like we're coming in and we're like you know garbage collecting taking all these nest cells out all these different therapies coming on i'm curious like what would be like um what would be like a what does a peak human look like and is it brian johnson but like what you know what would it what is if you do the right things your whole life you know more or less like what would that look like you know um yeah, i mean the, there's certainly some interest now in things like hyperbaric oxygen therapy with vasodilators and stuff like that to just increase uh, nutrients to tissues and uh and I, even though people who do kind of alternate both they'll do hyperbaric oxygen therapy and then they'll do hypoxic uh training <laughs> and so they're like stress the body on one and then saturate it uh the other 
I mean, this seems reasonable to me, to be honest. I, I don't know if like, you know, how how solid any particular data set is for it or like, you know what, you know, it it's, you know, I'd say experimental, but, uh, but it, it does make sense that like the, your vasculature beginning to fail impairs pretty much every tissue in your body and aerobic exercise improves that health and uh, oxygen saturation, all these kinds of things in tissues. And so th this kind of just makes sense, right? If you uh, end up with, uh, you know, restricted blood flow to things, uh, you get like all sorts of dysfunctions. And so the uh, counteracting that is a, a logical thing to do across the board. The uh, the idea of you know, our general inflammatory cytokines and things like that, like play, how, how big is the role of one versus the other is I think a, you know, an interesting question that is going to be teased out a little bit more, but I, I'm sure they, they both play a role. I, I mm -hmm. don't have much doubt about that. I just don't know to what extent one might be dominant. Is there is there a future uh, in senescent cells and the brain at OSIN? Do you see like a future where you guys are going to work on that, or um, is that oh, like kind of just like an interesting thing? Well, what so our our lead program now isn't even the senolytic. It's a uh, like our lead program now. It makes you build muscle without exercise. It's uh, the fall step mm -hmm. therapy. I know I should update the website, but uh, <laughs> um, the uh, we get into the fall step, and my next question involves fall step. Yeah, so the. Uh, and, I mean, this is partly just due to like the pharma interest and the regulatory path and all that. But uh, um, I think that the way we're likely going to move forward on the, the senolytic, uh, just in terms of just like future of the science, is uh, building better and better constructs that are, like that can target uh, you know subpopulations of senescent cells more effectively and, and more precisely. So the, the the best data we have so far is the one where we hit P16 and P53 together. Um, that, that is definitely synergistic. It doesn't seem to do anything bad, but uh, I think that as, as the field moves along, we'll probably find other pathways to target on it and we'll be able mm -hmm. to further adapt those. And I mean, one of the big challenges facing the senolytic space, uh, no shame included, um, is, is finding a regulatory path for it. So it, I think most people uh, in, in the field, even, even those who are just observing it, you know, generally by the argument that removing uh, the accumulated senescent cells uh, as you age is, is a beneficial thing. Um, that, that it's, uh, you, is it, it can address a lot of uh, problems, but it's not the same as tying this to a patient population that has a phase three endpoint you can show statistical mm -hmm. significance on and go through FDA. And, uh, and so that, that's become like the, the bigger issue was regulatory, not, not technical so much. Um, and I think that that's a, at the ability to zero in on specific subpopulations uh, or to make something you know, more potent, more precise, more reliable in one area uh, increases your odds probably of uh, um, getting something approved. But uh, on the other hand, I think that if you aren't clearing senescent cells across the entire body, you're likely not going to see a benefit to it. And I think this is really at, at the heart of why the, the Unity uh, trial crashed. Like in they showed this in their preclinical data too. It worked in young animals on old, and it was still effective on target in in the old. Like it removed uh, senescent cells in the, in the joint, but it it, uh, it wasn't able to overpower the the burden across the whole body. And uh, whereas if you take them out across the whole body, you, even if you're trying to focus it onto a specific target, like uh, you probably need the body as well. And uh, and uh, I think as we as we go forward, it's going to be a, how, how do you build these better constructs that uh, that pick off all of the ones that matter, but that like you know are going to work in one indication. Uh, 
you mentioned uh, Unity, and that actually uh, is a fan question. Their name is Lunchbox, and they show up a lot. So Lunchbox, thanks for the question. They just, the general question is, uh, are there any lessons to be learned from that failure of the knee? I have no idea how to say that second word. I'm mildly dyslexic in age-related muscular degeneration. What did you what did you learn from that failure? Uh, well, I'm much more familiar with the osteoarthritis study and the, the knee than I am their uh, age-related macular degeneration one. That, that um, was the word. The O but, word was that word. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> that um, was the word. But, but yeah, I think like if, if you if you look closely at the uh, the big paper that they were touting in a Nature, I think is a, where it was a. Um, Nature science, one of these big journals, um, before they went to clinic, like the abstracting conclusion said it worked great, but you start looking at the data and got a panel there where it shows that if you do it in an old animal, it doesn't actually improve the score. Like it's a no, no significant change on it. And uh, in this, it shocked me, frankly, that that went forward into clinic when like, I mean, no one's that lucky. Like who, who has preclinical data that comes out worse than the clinical trial? You know, like it, it's a, like it usually like, we, we cure cancer in mice all the time. Like it's much harder than the human. Like, so why, uh, why take it forward? And, and you don't have three-year-olds with osteoarthritis, usually like the, uh, not mediated by senescent cells probably. But, uh, and so I think that that really was at the heart of it. Now I don't have any inside information on, on them or anything like that, but, uh, but I know that the, the compound they're using was generally is too toxic to be used systemically. I mean, it, it was, effectively failed chemotherapy compound um but uh so they, they were kind of restricted to local administration of it and in in the eye i think you could make a case that the eye is somewhat immune privileged in a, a restricted environment and maybe clearing cells just in the eye uh would uh would have a, a benefit even in a, an old animal with a you know largely uh sas ridden environment but uh and i I don't know. I have, like I said, I haven't dug into that too deep, but certainly in in the knee, even preclinically, it didn't work. So uh, in, in an old animal, and that and all it did clear those cells. I mean, that, that's what I guess it was on target effective. It's I don't think anyone had doubted that, and you could show certainly in an old explant it worked. But uh, but I think it's the broad environment that got it. Um, and that, that's my general assessment. Hey, this uh. uh... We're going to get back to the science in a second, but the, in an article by Fierce Biotech in 2013, uh, they, they're quoting you on something, so I just wanted to, I'll set it up. Uh, the then CEO, Matt Scholes, spoke in skipping primate testing and going directly into humans in the next couple of years, hopefully. And this was in reference to uh, Immuno. Um, yeah. So I, I've, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, as, you know, from the outside, as many animals being tested as possible uh, because of, the terrible things that happen when you don't do it. Um, what What do you think about uh, organon chip um, skipping primates um, to go straight into humans and stuff like that? Like, what, what, do you, what do you think about that for clinical trials? Well, it's funny. Like, I, I mean, I've never been a fan of animal testing. Um, and mm. I mean, I, obviously, it's something I've done a lot of. And I mean, I've made a, a, such a point of like, you know, visiting these facilities, seeing what I, mean. I, I don't want to become detached from the consequences of my actions um and uh but i i think it's necessary at this point yeah. to do that I'm like the, there's no way around it i mean this it, it gets kind of preposterous at some point you're like you kill a human because you didn't want to test on an animal but uh the reason actually i didn't go to primates uh, other i mean i'm happy to not do primates if i can avoid it but uh the reason that the fda didn't make us do it or we convinced them uh, not to was that the system we built didn't work in primates period 
And so mm. that was an ex vivo cell therapy. And, uh, and we couldn't even at the time make it work in a mouse. Like we had to take an immune deficient mouse and then get them to like support the human cell. So the system was entirely human from day one. And I, I tried quite a bit actually to make a primate version of it. And uh, it mm. just, I mean, there's weird things. When you start doing ex vivo cell therapy, like you can buy a cytokine from two different vendors. One will work, one won't. Like uh, and you switch animals and they're like, oh, that's the yeah, IL-2. Maybe it's something that was similar to IL-2. It got the same name, but it's you don't know if it's really doing the same exact thing in the body. And so we basically said, look, there's zero like scientific merit for doing this. Like uh, we can't modify the primate one and the immune human ones will be slaughtered. Like uh, they don't have a, we, we can't use like an immune deficient monkey the same way we can a mouse. And so that, that was the rationale for it. And, you know, at Ocean, we've done, uh, we did primate studies actually very early. And the, the reason for that was that if you look at the history of lipid-based delivery systems, um, a lot of them looked really good in mice and become wildly toxic in primates and humans. And uh, I mean, think of the, the history of these things, like from what was basically something like a lipoeffectamine type compound to like the modern LMP. Even the modern LMPs, like when there were the days when like Moderna had IPO'd and stuff, and they're they were going to treat everything with LMPs, they'll be awesome, we're going to have for cancer, all these things. And basically were relegated to the liver and vaccines because if they administer any more of it, they're going to barbecue that liver. And uh, they just become wildly toxic when they accumulate. And so we were uh, aware of this problem, you know, from the very beginning. And so we wanted to make sure that ours didn't have it. <laughs> and so it was, it, we were incentivized to show that we could administer very high doses to the primates uh, without toxicity. But yeah, I, I think that at some point we'll be able to largely get around this. Like I, I'm a huge fan of the idea of say, a, you know, a person on a chip um, kind of testing that there's certain things where it's hard to imagine it like actually working for, or uh, like how do you age your system on a chip, for example, or like, you know, the, does it faithfully reproduce like all these epigenetic changes that might be really important for a therapy like mine. But, uh, but uh, I think, yeah, to the extent that we can minimize animal testing is great. And uh, um in some of these tools, they're getting better. And I, I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised if we, we saw a certain classes of molecules be kind of tested on them, you know, maybe not exclusively in the short term, mm -hmm. but uh, I mean, the, the FDA has paved the way to do this, but uh, um, fairly recently a policy change on it. I know like, uh, was it the uh, Dave Goble and those guys were working hard on this. And uh, so I think it, it'd be very advantageous if we can get this to work. The, the more we can, uh, keep away from furry little creatures in cages, the better, but, uh, but it's, it is hard to get away from me. Mm -hmm. I'll have to ask, uh, Dane, that question He's coming on the show in a couple of weeks, but, uh, as well, I'll, yeah. I'll ask, see what he thinks. Oh, as yeah. Well. Yeah, um, yeah. He, yeah. He'll love talking about that. He, he's working hard on it. Yes. So, uh, um, barrel master, which I think he's the person who is in the field or a PhD person. Cause he, he has very good, they, I don't know what they're generous, um, ask great questions. So there's going to be like two questions, two or three questions just from this person. Cause they were so good. Um, right. when do you think two input and gate promoters will be good enough to target specific organ organs with your PLV? Oh, I think actually pretty soon it, it depends on the. So I guess I say from a technical point of view, it's. Uh, a cell type, not an organ, that is the challenge. Like, because if you think of like an organ, you could have like, say, a fibroblast versus a uh, you know, hepatocyte or adipocyte, all living in the same uh, organ in the vasculature. And so, if you're to be technical, like you're after a, a subpopulation of them. Uh, and I think some of them are a lot easier than others. Um, 
the uh, and that's just I guess an artifact of biology. I, I'll give you an example. Like we have a, a program to kill fat cells selectively, and it seems to work pretty well. Um, and a uh, fun bit of trivia: the uh, there's a mouse model transgenic called the fat attack model, which is actually an ink attack model is based on that that Baker uh, Mayo Clinic one. Um, the uh, so you can wipe out adipocytes, and it uh, doesn't seem to cause any trouble. But uh, I got interested in wanting to take out visceral adipocytes selectively, so not hit subcutaneous ones like you know, your cheeks and your your ass and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that has proven very difficult. Um, there's not like a single clear promoter to go after. And so then you do really need this more logic gate approach. And in I said in some tissues, it's pretty straightforward. You could do it uh, today without much trouble. And in others, I think the logic gets more complex. And it has to do with really just how the particular cell type is, uh, you know, what genes it's running. And the there's some issues with, uh, you know, we have limitations on how you study this with like, you know, large transcriptomic databases or single cell RNA-seq type uh, applications where is is every cell there really the same i mean if you think of like your lymphocyte populations <clears throat> we keep finding new populations we never knew existed at all and uh and so as you start looking at your your organ you think okay well if i'm uh, just trying to make uh the liver produce a, an enzyme or i'm making you know, um that's not a big deal i can hit the liver i can restrict it to the liver that, that's easy the uh and if uh i'm off target a little bit probably not going to cause much trouble. If you are carrying a suicide gene, <laughs> you're saying, I want to kill just this one cell, um, and you mess it up, really bad things can happen. So uh, I think there, there's not like a, I guess, a super easy answer to it. That like the, yeah, part is we can do some of this today. It's not a challenge for certain tissues. Uh, and we can skew the biodistribution of the PLB quite a bit too, to kind of uh, aid that to some extent. But, uh, but some of them I can't do right now that I want to, so... And uh, I, I don't know for sure when I'll have a, a working version of that, but I think soon, like the the, the kind of rise of uh, like machine learning and in uh, control logic of the body in particular, like is, is moving very quickly. And I think that some of these tools are going to allow us to build things that would have been really hard to build in the past. And uh, I want to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. the, when it, When it comes to your therapy, will it be... I imagine this can be some form of injection. It will be like something that you would take like once a year every for a period of time until things are better, and then you take it again when things go bad. Like, how do you see it actually when it, uh, how it will play in people when it's full uh, through the clinical trials? Well, the muscle building one is probably going to be done like once every five to ten years. Uh, I'm guessing, um, and the uh, the senolytic ones different in that I think it will depend on your age, and so if I if you're really old and uh, you're kind of frail and you have a huge senescence burden, maybe, maybe you had some cancer therapies in the past, you might uh, be better served by taking a few lower doses uh, and then going to a high dose of it. Um, and uh, other than before just slamming your body with a really high dose of it. And the, uh, but once you clear them, um, I mean, you think how long does it take to get a wrinkle? Um, it's an interesting question. Like it, your, your body accumulates senescent cells from birth, but uh, it doesn't, uh, they don't start causing dysfunction for a while. So the, uh, and they begin to accumulate kind of exponentially as you get older. And the question I guess comes to, if you knock them all down, like say, say you could wipe them out to zero as a 70 year old, uh, 
do they rebound at the same rate or not? Um, how quickly do they come back? And uh, it, what what's the what are the other kind of variables uh, going to do to this? And so I I would think in a like the D and Q therapies right now seem to be kind of moving to a a stage where you do them like maybe once a quarter or once a year um, for you know your cycle of you know three days a week or whatever. I think it's the standard one now. But uh, that's you know not a super good semolytic, admittedly. So the, the question is, like, you've got a really good one. Uh, I'm guessing you're going to need repeat dosing of it in the semolytic, no matter what. It's just a, but I think the the exact schedule will probably vary by age in what you're trying to treat. And so we, we're looking at it for blocking the transition of acute kidney injury to chronic kidney disease. And in that scenario, it was probably going to be done as like, you know, one dose every couple of weeks for, you know, a couple of months, then you'd be done and you wouldn't take any more because it was just mm -hmm. trying to break a feedback loop that was causing trouble. Um, but if you're looking at it for aging, I think you're pretty much stuck having to do it <laughs> in, indefinitely because you, you'll keep getting yourself. Mm -hmm. What would, uh, for the, for the muscle, uh, line, what would happen theoretically if you were to put it in just like a healthy population, would it like juice them up at all or would it, is oh, it yeah. more for people? Okay. No, no, it should. Uh, like <laughs> our our first studies in mice, uh, we we're just using normal, you know, healthy mice, and it was a uh, you know one administration of it in six months they're fifty percent larger and twice as strong, and so it's a uh, yeah, it, it absolutely should do stuff a healthy person. In fact, you know, one of the outstanding questions is how frail can you be and have it still be working all right? Like, does it have a? Is there a, a cutoff at some point where it wouldn't work? But uh. Yeah, it absolutely works really well in young, healthy animals. In fact, if you do it as a transgenic, the phenotype is four times the muscle mass. Massive. You know, that's only been done in mice, to my knowledge. Are there any downsides to the Arnold Schwarzenegger mice? Like, is there, you know, I know with steroids, like, you can have, like, heart effects and stuff like that. Yeah, so in, in like, follistatin therapy type uh, context, there doesn't really seem to be. Like, the metabolic health. Is, is improved. Uh, we, we didn't run full lifespan studies on them. Some uh, other people make claims that improves the lifespan of it, but uh, I don't think they've been studied extensively. The, uh, if you took a, like the transgenics that are four times the muscle mass, I think that that probably causes enough stress on the heart to be problematic. Cause I mean, if you, if you were to scale up at the human size, uh, I mean, four times the size of a normal human, I mean, you're, you're still going to be weighing like four or 500 pounds. Like, and uh, even though the, the therapy itself isn't uh, acting on cardiomyocytes, the, the stress on the cardiovascular system may have an issue at that point. But uh, and I don't think anyone ran those transgenic mice out for lifespan studies or anything like that. It was more just to explore the pathway. But, but yeah, I, I think that in, in a, the therapeutic context for statin, there doesn't really seem to be any downside to it. Um, the it, it would, I suppose, theoretically make you uh, less resistant uh, to starvation. Um, so you're you're acting on a pathway that's built to conserve energy <laughs> effectively. I mean, you're the reason you know myostatin is there is to make you as weak as possible, and it's you know, I think largely thought for uh, you know, metabolic reasons. To a healthy human can go for. Uh, like a month without food or a healthy man at least uh, and um i think there, there's some uh sex differences between uh resistance to caloric restriction and starvation but uh but yeah so i think that's a theoretical downside to it but it was one that didn't seem likely in the context that, that we're living today um i think one one interesting aspect of follistatin compared to say like a steroid or testosterone is that like 
Follistatin isn't different between men and women. Um, it's a it's the same pathway. It doesn't have any androgenic effects. And so, uh, you know, testosterone is this kind of master regulator of all sorts of stuff. And uh, and Follistatin doesn't really do that. And so there there are different splice site variants to it. Interestingly enough, that do different things. But uh, but those are not what you use uh, in in this context. I can see this being like Ozempic. I think it is where it like helps you with late weight loss because one of the best ways to lose weight is just to have more muscle because then you're just ambiently burning more calories and then you know oh yeah it, like that this is a, a great interest to the pharmaceutical industry for really this kind of uh reason and that uh if if you take ozempic or semaglutide or or any any of those glp1 type agonists and you lose a bunch of weight you you lose muscle along with the fat and i think the the average ratio is about 60 40 of fat to muscle loss and the uh, if you stop taking the drug, then the uh, rebound effect is really directly correlated to how much muscle mass you have. So in some cases, you don't really have much a rebound effect. Um, others, they'll balloon right back up. And so the the thought being that yeah, if you could pair something like that with something that drove a skeletal muscle growth, you would have a a far more comprehensive metabolic therapy and uh, and you'd reduce the risk of kind of a, a rebound effect because you're not it's not just that you're burning more calories although i think that that probably plays a role it's that muscles regulate blood sugar and all sorts of stuff so it's a i mean the reason we're so interested in that for for old age is that you know physical strength becomes everything like the your muscle mass you know protects you against falls, allows you to move around, socialize, increases quality of life, regulates metabolism. Like it, it's really a huge issue. Um, I mean, makes you more resilient against disease or injury. And so it's playing a much bigger role than just the, just vanity or just how much you can lift or, or, you know, kind of a, it, the mechanical properties of it. And so I think that, yeah, that, I, I think as a sideline that uh, things like semaglutide are probably going to become the first broadly adopted health span improving drugs in existence. That uh, that these things like if you start looking at the data for like whether it be cardiovascular health, uh, colon cancer, like everything across the board looks really beneficial. And, and I think it's it shouldn't be super surprising that especially you know in, in the developed world, like people get old, they get fat, they get inflamed, and bad things happen. And uh, if you get rid of that, like that's positive on a whole bunch of levels, not not just because you might have diabetes or just because you are you know obese. And so I, I think that these things are going to become adopted far more broadly. And I mean, you see this already, of course. Like you can go to like any med spa in the country and get yourself a prescription for semaglutide. <laughs> There's no like a, a knockoff of it. They're like prolific, but uh, to the chagrin of pharma companies. But uh, the I think a logical step after that is, okay, well, how do we, uh, instead of just getting rid of something that was causing trouble, uh, build up something that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Is that, um, is that potential something that, uh, investors have been really excited about? Cause I, I imagine if people see Ozempic as like this big thing, they're like, Hey, this, this can like boost muscle and do all these other, and, and, you know, um, I don't know what Ozempic's original thing was for, but I know like diabetes. You know, okay. So if you, um, if you can do the stuff that we're talking about, it sounds like you'll have, you'll be able to eat your, have your cake and eat it too, in a sense of like, uh, lose weight, be healthier. Cause like your weight affects everything. Like, you know, if you're yeah. marginally obese, like your cholesterol is worse than heart attacks are more likely strokes are more like just, um, more muscle burning more. Um, and then people are busy. It seems pretty, yeah. uh, something that like people with money would be, <laughs> I love your glass. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's a great glass. Yeah. <laughs> 
Pete, people are pretty excited about it, I'd say. I mean, it's why it's become the lead program now. In the end, like, uh, pharma wants it. And uh, and that's, uh, I mean, it, it's important. Like, if, if you want to, to build therapies and, you know, after longevity and, and health span, but, like, our, more more than just making people live longer, you want to live better first. Like, uh, life should become a side effect of health span. And I think eventually, if we're talking about, like, can we double our average lifespan again, like we did in the last 100 years, we're, we're going to have to change the person, not just the environment. And so we're going to need tools that are, you know, pretty invasive in that respect, like that they're actually altering core processes in your body. But, uh, and I think that's great, but no one wants to live to be 200 as a hundred year old. Um, you want, you want to live uh, to be 200 as a 30 year old. Uh, so making your body function better is, it's kind of this logical path. And it's in some respects that we, we've built this strategy around saying, okay, we, we want to make a drug, a uh, therapy that can be approved by the FDA for something. I, I don't want to just like throw myself on the rocks of FDA should let me treat aging and longevity out of the gate. Uh, let's just build things that have a, a known indication and uh, that we can use for improving health span and lifespan. And, uh, and then I, I think they, they will come around to this, but, uh, but yeah, from my, just a, a business point of view and a strategy point of view, I think it, it makes a lot more sense to start throwing these in and collecting these data points. Um, as you, I mean, if you got, you know, a, a licensing deal worth a few billion dollars and a, and a product uh, going into people and you say, Oh, I think we can use this for aging. That's a lot easier sell than uh, mm -hmm. saying I'm going to build something that no one's ever tested and uh, use it in a human and say, I want to use it for aging. Yeah, and then you can uh, like split off some of that money and do more research and, you know, make out uh more ip so yeah is is there um what is so for the fda from like the you know normal clinical route outside of you know just weight loss and being healthy mm -hmm. uh what is the target uh, population that you guys are going for like who are you going to be helping i said that right now on the the muscle building one we're looking at nursing home uh, patient populations uh with just markers of you know sarcopenia and frailty and the i i think you know we are still, I guess, you know, we're early enough in this process that it's, it's a conversation we'll have with regulators about like how, you know, exactly to pin that down, but that's the, the gist of it. Um, because they're, you know, a controlled environment, like you can, you can watch them, you can measure them and, uh, and ideally can show lots of benefits over time. The, the other route we've looked at and we haven't, uh, I don't know. We still might go after it, but it's like one that we haven't put as much into is actual local administration of it. Because if you put it into a like into a muscle, that muscle gets bigger. It's it's noticeable, um, and that of course is of interest for cosmetic applications. But also, it has a huge issue in like injury and like uh, I think that like if if you're immobilized, you can still use this, for example. Um, and I think that that's something we'd looked at, but we prioritize the systemic one because you know frailty uh is more kind of on mission for the longevity focus um where in local is uh you know ha has some benefits but it's easier to go from systemic to local than from local to systemic also if you uh does the therapy have any effect on healing like if i like 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 you just said like injury so if i tore like you you tear muscles and and just Ooh. exercising but if you do damage to it is there like any effects on regeneration or all uh I think, uh, so there were some early studies where they're using things like snake venom that was uh, myotoxic and stuff like this and showing uh, that you could heal faster with uh, follistatin therapies. And I think from normal 
injury from exercise and use, you, you see recovery faster because it's, you know, stimulating uh, muscle growth. But uh, in, uh, in the case of if you, say, broke a bone, um, I, it, it would prevent the atrophy of the muscle or should mitigate it substantially. But it, it, I don't know if it would have any effect on the healing of the bone or healing of skin, for example. I, I don't think it's like, broadly speaking, pro-regenerative. I think that uh, it, it enhances regeneration in muscles specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so the, I'm a big fan of SENS, you know, love Michael J. Fox type foundations that basically create IP, which then gets licensed out and does, you know, great things. Um, how do you think as someone who's in his, with your experience, what can be done to, um, to, uh, encourage and, and support, uh, these kind of like bell labs types organizations that are, that are doing this type of work? Yeah. So, I mean, interestingly enough, my, uh, co-founder had started a foundation, the, the long range, uh, Institute to, to basically accelerate longevity therapies, uh, also as we built this and, um, and largely uh, on this translational aspect to try to make them available um, faster to people. And I think, uh, I mean, where you see probably the most of these kinds of foundations that prove to be effective are in the rare disease spaces. Um, and uh, like the, I mean, it, there's a, a somewhat more big quip that the best thing that can happen to a rare disease patient is for a, a movie star, uh, kid to get it or something like that. Like that, uh, basically someone, someone in Hollywood who will publicize this and uh, then you get like people mobilizing around it. And I, I think they can be very effective at taking things uh, that would otherwise die in academia and advancing them to the point that a, a pharma might find them interesting. And th this has been you know, historically a problem. Uh, it's why you know the Orphan Drug Act and all that stuff uh, was created. That you know, if you're going to spend, it costs basically the same amount R and D to make a drug for a million people as it does for ten. Um, and so, and you can't recoup the same costs from a small population. So that all these incentives in, uh, were built to try to um, encourage uh, development in that space. And I think with a good deal of success, really. But with the the foundations like rarely have, I think, the ability to take a drug forward the way a pharma or a biotech startup would. Um, and they typically don't have the academic resources themselves to make like really like new deep science stuff. So they, I think they typically are most effective as kind of facilitators of sorts where they're like sitting there saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to find these people who are working on it. We're going to give them more money. So they keep working on it. And we're going to take this IP and we're going to figure out how to like shop it to a pharma or how to get it over this wire. And if they can't get a pharma to do it, we're going to talk to like an academic hospital who will do it as an investigator sponsored trial to like get a, a human proof of concept on it and publish this. And so I think that, that's how, at least just from my as third party observation have seen them tend to be the most effective. Um, I think you could, uh, you could definitely do, there's other approaches to it. Like I said that Gary Hudson, the co-founder, uh, his idea was to use it more as a translational uh, tool or like a, I guess later, later in this process where you take something that seemed to like work and, and apply it to, to be, make it accessible or accessibility tool as opposed to, um, a straight development one but uh um but yeah i guess for the purposes of your question like um what do you want to actually support i guess it'd be the, um like if you were if the question is how do you support these groups or make them better uh what, what do you want the group to do um because i think that the answer would would differ a bit like uh, 
Uh, uh, I'm describing how I've seen the most successful, not necessarily how to directly answer yeah. your question. Yeah, the uh, you know, I guess the the answer would be to um, to affect positive change to diseases. So you know, not just like generate IP, but IP that can help people and improve their lives, like diseases and stuff like that. I think Michael J. Fox, like I was talking to someone, yeah. and they said that his organization is um, basically the reason that they might have like actual parkinson's like massive like it's it, the 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 world with or without that 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 uh foundation is the difference between a parkinson's being treatable like something we can do about event like pretty quickly soon from now and maybe this century well and think about that like i was back to my cynical uh, little quote um that because you had a, a famous person who got it, uh, who had the ability to publicize this and serve as a, like could attract this level of interest from science. Like they were able to serve as like a focal point or, or a group that could gather others together. And that's, I mean, that's effectively what the foundations do. Like, and I mean, Michael J. Fox is a pretty big foundation at this point um, relative to other rare disease ones. Like and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good size. And the and so they're capable of doing things that others couldn't but i think if you look at like what is it that made the difference uh in that it was at some point some scientist who was messing around with uh these kinds of uh symptoms you know heard that oh there's someone interested in this i, I bet i can get like my lab some money <laughs> i bet, bet i can build make another paper out of it and uh like th those are always the earlier uh actions that take place like i i, I think that a lot of the world's problems have been solved and the answers are just trapped trap between the ears of a scientist in a lab. And there's a, mm. a huge problem, I think, with academia and that like the, uh, the currency of academia is really publications. And so you get a grant, you write a paper, and typically by the time you apply for a grant, it takes a while to get it. By the time you get it, you've probably already done the work. You use the money on something else. You publish the paper. Then you go on to the next thing. And that's that's the value get the paper like high profile high impact journal and do something else and that it's not an organization incentivized to build therapies and that, that's why like i mean when immisoft's a good example is actually so immisoft's core technology came out of caltech um from a nobel laureate's lab david baltimore's lab and so this is high profiles you can get the guy who was president of caltech and i had met him randomly at an event uh, back to our earlier conversation and said hi but uh i you know, called him up and was like hey uh, i want to program b cells and you built this cool uh, lymphopoiesis system i i think i can use it to build my app store and so oh, that sounds fun like i'll get into a tech transfer and uh that was like this uh start and but thinking back the how someone with no background in bio at all could stroll into the nobel laureate's lab and make off of that technology for very little money um was a uh, just a testament to how underexploited that space is that there there's not enough people who take things out of the lab in the, into the real world there's a and this, this is why i'm so passionate about that niche like it's full circle on this and uh foundations i think are capable of operating that way like and, and the ones that are successful often do where they're they're doing kind of what what i was doing but uh, doing it as an organization not as an individual and and focusing more on uh usually like when the foundations get started, there often isn't a clear path to what you want to do. Like in, in my case, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do uh, from, from the beginning. <laughs> and I was just looking for pieces. But uh, but yeah, there there is so, so much latent potential in academia in the U.S. just begging to be 
exploited. And I think it, I've had largely good receptions from scientists for it. Even ones who like, you know, looking back, I wonder why they talked to me at all. Um, but uh, I think they, they want to see their work do something good too. And uh, they say, hey, I, I think I can use this to like, to cure some horrible disease or to make someone's lives better. And they're, they're usually receptive to it. And uh, so they, that's, that's something I think that if you're building foundations for, for a particular cause, one of the first steps you do take is you identify, you know, who needs this thing and who's working on this thing. And, uh, and you try to bring those people together and, uh, and then collect enough money to make, make something go forward that would have otherwise been forgotten. Actually, if I could have a quick question, is there any help that you need as we have everyone listening in, what help do you need and OSIN needs to achieve this objective? Like anything at all that people listening could help with? Well, I, I guess my party line is I'm usually looking for money, brains, and molecules. Um, the uh, always trying to um, to I guess connect uh, uh, smart people and ideas of resources. But I I guess more specifically uh, uh, these days uh, on the science side, I'm I'm you know still very interested in manipulating the control logic of life, and so like these uh, ways of designing new like uh, Boolean logic. I think that this marriage of like computer science and medicine and like synthetic biology is like really where the, the field is going. And I, I'm really interested in bringing those things to bear in longevity. And I think they, they'll enable us to do like more and more powerful things with the uh, delivery technology in particular. And so uh, anyone who's interested in that kind of stuff, uh, I'm always, always excited about uh, people who want to do clinical trials or have really cool models and they want to, to play with them. Uh, that's like a, another one that's really common. And obviously, uh, yeah, we're raising a series A. So uh, anyone who feels like writing checks is always uh, always on the warpath for that. And uh, in, in the rare event that I'm not raising money, I always know someone who else is. So uh, <laughs> um, that's a, was a, a common one. But yeah, I think I, I really, uh, I think all the greatest innovations happen when disciplines mix and you like have these these ideas and uh, two, two different perspectives come together. And so, so I really enjoy interacting with other people who are approaching these problems with different tools and different ideas and think about to combine them. Thank you so much for sitting down today to be on the show. Uh, I appreciate uh, just you coming on today. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a blast and uh, happy to, to chat anytime. And uh, I always love to to get the word out and encourage uh, the next generation of people to come on and, uh, and, and join us in this, this battle.